0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: It's really about at what scale of effectiveness do our tools of cooperation work? Because there are certain levels of challenges that show up now in business on a regular basis. For example, that they would have showed up 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we would have freaked out and lost our mind. And now we can routinely work at that speed at that scale. We can respond to it in real time. And I think it's a, like, I think the problem and COVID gave us a solution. The problem is how do you cooperate at scale at speed without a war driving you forward? right like that's the, right, that's the great way what people it. forget is the first we have a primary we humans invented well not humans exactly I guess all species sort of figured this out but humans got better at it than a lot of species first which is peace is a cooperative technology right flat out it's the foundational cooperative technology peace is is sort of that you know that which allows all the other things to take place
0: That was Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author of 13 books that range between novels, peak performance, environmentalism, and technology. His latest book is The Devil's Dictionary, and his previous book, The Art of Impossible, will likely be of interest to you too. In today's wide-ranging episode, we discuss how technology doesn't necessarily lead to dystopia, the downstream positive effects of COVID-19, and the challenges of scaling and accelerating collaboration at a global, national, and community scale. If you've been eating what your smartphone has been feeding you for too long, you might find this episode a refreshing counter-narrative. A quick production note, there's some slight distortion on Stephen's audio that we couldn't fix in real time. Rather than reschedule, we rolled with the conversation. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me today. As I've been preparing for this interview, I've been incredibly impressed with the um, range of your body of work, and we're going to get into that. But um, thanks for taking the time out to talk to us today. My pleasure. So it looks like, as far as a professional career starts, you started in journalism, and then you ended up in, like, a lot of your work currently, a lot of your nonfiction work centers on flow and human potential. So I'm curious, you're clearly a gifted mind that has range. What about those areas really hooked you that you said, you know what, I'm going to do a much, a bunch more work and focus on this.
1: So it's interesting. I always say that at the center of my work is all, a lot of my work is usually the fact that I've, I've spent my career studying the impossible, right? Those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. and whenever that happens you tend to see two things you see people learning how to harness disruptive technology so i've written six books about disruptive technology and how do you do all that and then you see people getting into flow and using it to extend human capability so i've written six six books about that and you know it's funny because i'm most interested in how do you the impossible challenges that i want people to use technology to solve tend to be environmental because those the things i work on and um i got a bunch of companies that do that work and then i've got the flow research collective that teaches people how to you know sort of extend human capability and you know while there's a whole bunch of like peak performance reasons why people want to learn flow flow the more time we spend in flow uh, it increases empathy and mm-hmm. nature-relatedness, right? So we care more about each other, we care more about the world at large, the more time we spend in flow. And to me, that's that's like the net gain. So they all sort of come together at the like, how do we solve these environmental challenges? Uh, sort of issues, um, mm-hmm. but that's how I I look at it as like both these, these paths all leading. And I guess in my in my fiction, all this stuff gets jumbled together into one world. Because the truth of the matter is, all this stuff is jumbled together in one world, in our world, right? And like
0: mm-hmm. you know. Um, Trust me, as a um, trained philosopher who does this work publicly, I I empathize with everything flowing together. And when people look and say, well, you talk about this and you talk about this and you talk about this, it's like, actually, these are all different fractals of a same problem or different approaches to solving core core things. And it looks different depending upon the context. And you already... um, You already mentioned things that I was going to sort of say, you know, from my perspective, your body of work is a triple VIN. Like if we had to do the overlapping VIN, uh, what I'm going to call radical humanism. I'll come back to that. All right. Um, Technological optimism. Okay. And um, environmental slash climate restoration.
1: It's a little bigger and slightly different from how I think about it. I don't tend to think I'm a technological optimist, all I've said is, Hey, we have the technology to solve these challenges. It's still going to require the largest cooperative effort in the history of the world. And it's not just people like working together like never before it's probably people in flow and optimal performance working together like never before. So I tend to like be aware of what's going on on the cutting edge. Uh, for example, there's been a trillion dollars in venture investment into the, in green, uh, uh, Green energy this year, right? That's an amazing sum of money flowing into, you know, that's tech. Is if it, I don't think that's technological optimism, um, as much as hey, I'm just, I'm just reporting, you know, what's going on, paying attention. So I think of it a little bit differently, because um, I, you know, I sometimes wonder, am I, you know, an optimo? I try to be a rational optimist, is what I try for.
0: So I'm going to push back a little bit against the you don't. Con, I, I know you don't consider yourself technological optimist, but let me at least present my case for it, okay. if you if you might. In the world that we live in right now, um, especially in the world of the pandemic, and when you look at how people are talking about the social dilemma and sort of social media, and you're thinking about a lot of that, and when you think about the um, refreshing optimism that's in the mm, dictionary, okay. There yeah, is okay. there is this view where it's like you know what it's not just that the technology is there it's that it can we there, it can actually be a force for good and I think abundance has a similar thing because abundance the main thesis is that things are in fact actually getting better.
1: Um, yeah, but again, but it, yeah, so I
0: don't know whether it's the humanism yeah, I, or the technology. I, think
1: would, I mean, abundance just tracks. I mean, we're, we're making our case based on like hard data metrics in the world. So it's interesting and it's really, you know, it depends which things you're, as you have just pointed out, you gave me a a list of data points. Those data points are certainly real. And I'm, you know, I'm the first person to tell you that I think social media broke an entire generation, you know? Yeah. So, so, oh, a good technology, bad technology is always going to say there.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, because, you know, as I was looking at your body of work and your this sort of radical humanism, and again, we could just say humanism and I'm I just, out I, course, so
1: right? I I'm, maybe I'm fine with the radical piece. I just don't quite know what, what do you mean by radical humanism?
0: What's your, there's humanism in the sense where, um, you know, humans have high potentials to do great things, right? Both on the moral character side of things, but also, oh, yeah, just then I, on yeah, I the fall
1: under the heading of radical humanism. Yeah, if that's, if that's how you're defining it this is a good label for me. And by the way, probably how you're defining techno yeah. optimism. That's also a good, like, these are fine labels for me. I'm just me. So you put me in a box and I'm going to fight back.
0: <laughs> I absolutely. That's why I was going to, that's what, what yeah, am no, I missing it's, or it's what did fair. I get wrong? I, and <laughs> and I, I think what I got wrong. I just
1: don't know. Cause it's all like, it all comes together. uh t- It's all the same thing. Thing to me because i was the one who like sort of cobbled together at through an experience i guess
0: yeah um well i can say that it's easier when other people are looking at your body of work to sort of try to find through lines than when you're actually the person creating it you're like i'm just you know it's interesting as if what's in front of me i see the trans but i don't see it that way um and i've been curious um if, you know, if those, that way of being is sort of correct, I've wondered how your body of work and how your general vibe has um, affected or has has really been received during the time of the pandemic. And I'll say it this way, I know because I have similar, at least close enough to some of those radical, you know, humanism, things like that. And then when the pandemic hit and when all these things hit, I was like, actually, though, that's, we're going through a terrible period of time. Truth. But also, things are still better than they have been in the past, and we can still get out of this. And there's still that sort of upbeat, the future can be better and brighter sort of thing um, that I've sensed in some places like, well, that's kind of tone deaf in what's going on right now. And I was like, but it's objectively true. Um, I'm I'm wondering if if you've had any sort of similar vibes as you've been out talking to folks um, and and talking to folks. So it's
1: interesting. Um, There's two sides this Answer, one's a technological, one's a, one's a human performance side in how I think about it. Um, the first is that there's overwhelming data. There's like I think four different studies out of China that showed that the people who had the most flow, right, there's a direct correlation between flow during the pandemic, the amount of time you spend in flow during the pandemic, and are you flourishing now, right? There was all this work on languishing in the pandemic and the, the single largest predictor of how poorly you did during the pandemic was how much flow you got so i was in a very we were like and we were at the front end of the pandemic as soon as it happened um we at the flow research collective uh, started doing these live crowdcasts everybody was freaked out and we wanted to like bring everybody together and say hey wait a minute like this stuff is hard and it's real but we think flow could be like neural protective and boost the immune and so we started poking at that and, and working at that so there's a Peak performance silver lining, and we learned a lot more about how do humans thrive in uncertainty and adversity as a result of that. The other side of it is whatever you're feeling on the vaccines are, what is entirely <laughs> without debate is drug discovery through A.I., through RNA interference through quantum computing right quantum computing is kind of not a real thing at the front end of the pandemic and it's it becomes a real thing because it's very useful for drug discovery and suddenly like oh shit we've got a big problem and what people actually don't realize is even on the environmental side all of that drug discovery ai quantum power low-hanging fruit once you've done drug discovery is new foods and new materials so like we're about to have a material science revolution we're about to have a new food you know how do we make more food for less vertical for all that stuff comes out of the pandemic and um Yeah, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering. But I also always want to point out, and I think maybe this is the radical humanism, but this is what... So we do this sometimes with our clients, um, especially when we're doing peak performance aging, um, because there's a lot of uh, stuff that says if you want to age successfully and really perform at your best over 50, you sort of have to forgive all those people who have done you wrong. And you got to sort of like put down the victim mindset stuff. And I always tell people, and first of all, the victim mindset, like, life happens to me, it's bad, COVID, blah, 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 That's an external locus of control. Everything we know about psychology says if you have an external locus of control, you cannot perform at your best. You've just given away all your power, and with it goes ability to focus and get into flow and a whole bunch of other stuff that you need. So that in and of itself is, is, is problematic, but as you know, I always think of it as, like, the big problems in my life. And by the way, I was one of the I, – like, I got COVID-19 – right at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So like I was one of the first cases in Nevada, I think, um, and uh, got it from a friend who came back from Asia. So, uh, and I was in New York at the, at the end. I was I, actually on Fox news or some sh- TV show, the morning COVID was announced launching the futures faster than you think with Peter Diamandis. And we're both looking at each other. We're like, is the future faster than we think? Cause this, this stuff is real. Like, um, so, so, I'm not negating the suffering. I'm not negating the difficulty and the challenge, and because um, nobody got out of that, you know what I mean. Clean. It just it, it impacted all of us, and and economically, it still is. Um, but every super hardship in my life has been a teleportation chamber, right? Like I walked in one person. It was. It's like my life said, "Well, what's the shortest distance between two points?" is teleportation. It's always teleportation. And the teleportation chamber is always a tragedy of some kind. It's always, oh no, now you have to totally get your ass kicked. Whether it's, I got Lyme disease and spent three years in bed, or, you know, I blah, 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 all the great difficulties in my life and everybody's life, right? Why? Because the the narrative is wrong. Like 90% of the time we experience trauma. We don't have post-traumatic stress disorder. We can have post-traumatic growth. That's what happens. That's what human beings are, right? Hemingway. Uh, the world wasn't wrong. The world breaks everyone, and many, and afterwards, many are stronger at the broken places. That's how we're built. And so, the bigger the ass kicking, often the like shorter the telepathic chamber between you know where we were and where we need to go. As far as I'm concerned.
0: I'm with you on that one. You know, my angle was more about the future of work. And, you know, I say most of the time when people get me in future work conversations is like, we barely understand the now of work, right? And so let's pause there. But, you know, what it did for the work environment is like, no, not since World War II in the United States has there been such disruption to the way we work and live as covid And it spurred so much innovation and never did we have an opportunity before, whether you're talking about big companies or entrepreneurs, to say, you know what? It's not that we have a clean, clean start because we still got stuff to do, but all these things we sort of been thinking about all these things that have been sort of those quadrant two important, not urgent. We might get to them. It's now, right? So we have this opportunity to embrace it right now Uh, and change it. Yeah. I, I, I mean,
1: I, I think, I hadn't thought about it in terms of the the World War II to now disruption in work. You're probably uh, that's probably a, a, a smart comment. I got to think about it a little bit more, but it's interesting. And, and certainly, I mean, we got women in the workforce. Fantastic, right? Like the brains of half the species haven't been allowed to work. No, no, we like, please, you know what I mean? That's a big helpful. Thank God, change. Um, and I think you know we'll see the same thing. Certainly, we're seeing a shift away from certain kind of blue collar work that can be automated. Suddenly we're starting to know, you know, is it a rich, poor divide? Is it, or is it a digital thing? Some organizations have figured out how to digitize their business ahead of others, but they're all going to go that way. And they have to, um, to keep pace. And that's, you know, they're not all going to go that way, but, you get my point there. Um, and I, so I think those are, though it has facilitated a lot of stuff. It's also, there's a lot of nonsense in 21st 20th century work, like meetings with 20 people in a meeting room, like that ever accomplishes a fucking thing. Pardon my language. Like seriously, there work, like we need a billion dollar office building. So our workforce can come together. Like really are you sure what you really actually need is people with the social bonding chemicals like that you need right like and if you don't get those we have problems you don't actually need these use investments in, in- infrastructure so you so that employees can have certain neurochemicals that are provided through social encounters we're smart enough to say oh no we, we are habit creatures and we run on neurochemistry and this is what we need to do our jobs effectively. So I think the future of work, I to me, it's 90% of performance, 95% of performance. Um, and certainly when you're at the elite levels, it's all mental. And the, you know, think about work over the 20th century. Like it, we got at the end of it, we got, you know, a hundred years of like work performance. And What did we get? Time management and energy management. Those were like the two giant insights. We got time management at the turn of the century. And then at the end of it, it was energy management. And I'm not energy management. Jim Lear and all that work was great. Like, great, fantastic. Physiology gets into the equation, but we're just at the front end of of the neurocognitive work revolution. And it's the good news is it's not just, you know, it's about empathy. So it's not just brains, it's about empathy and, you know, and environmental awareness and a bunch of like it's a very the worker of the 21st century is a very different person. I'll give you a simple example that is sort of funny and interesting and really important and I love. And it came out of COVID, sort of. So flow, we talked about this a second ago, automatically expands empathy and nature relatedness. So on the empathy front, after George Floyd, speaking of things that happened during COVID, law enforcement agencies and three-letter agencies suddenly went and soldiers like military uh, agencies all went, oh, crap. Empathy is part of the job. We need empathy to do the job. We can't make split second hair trigger fear based decision. Holy shit! And how do you train law enforcement in empathy? Well, you can use compassion meditation, right? Doesn't it's a little bit difficult to get cops to do loving kindness meditation if they're coming in cold, right? For obvious reasons. Same thing with like soldiers who are like eighteen years old, but flow, peak performance. You're gonna make me a better police officer. You're gonna make me a better soldier. And the byproduct is empathy and equal. So we have been training and I, I can't we I can we train the San Francisco Police Department. Um and we are now training a bunch of others and I'm not allowed to until the training's done, we can't talk about the work we're doing. Um but that's a you know here's all of this stuff sort of coming together in a post and this is, you know, just the kind of thing that people are likely to be cynical i mean have been cynical about for really good reasons right um and uh now we have neural cognitive technologies for you know reducing bias and reduce increasing empathy and as a bonus you get better decision making and peak performance like okay this is cool that this is this century um the future of work so yeah. It, did we get this giant disruption? Sure. But let's never let a good crisis go to waste.
0: I'm with you on that one. And um, it's interesting. My background before I started this, I was in the army. Um, and so I came in and around the late, you know, late 90s. And so during that period of time, there was the transition yeah. that you're talking yeah, about the, in the sense. Uh, don't ask. Don't, tell, don't work
1: like that. Bad idea. Bad idea. Yeah. Bad idea on yeah. That
0: one. Yeah, we essentially have one way of saying it is and I think it's true of our society at large but the DOD had went through a like century of taylorism mm-hmm. right of just f- using the ford yep. model and thinking about individual soldiers and, and individual cogs and realized wait a second the soldiers that we need on the modern battlefield need to be flexible. They need to be able to think on their feet. They need to be empathetic because we have civilians on the battlefield. They need to be able to handle the what we now call VUCA yep. environments, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous um, environments. It turns out, creating a cog no, does not.
1: Help you need soldiers that, in flow, right? right? This is all the work we've done with the Navy SEALs and 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 a, and a bunch of others, right? I mean, even to the point of. We did some work with marine pilots and, like, can marine pilots inflow, do they crash less, right? Like, really fundamental, like, these are billion-dollar machines, you know what I mean? Like, let's not break them. Cogs break them. High-flow individuals who have creative decision-making skills don't.
0: Yeah, we are. We are at this point. I love I've, I've been saying never let a good crisis go to waste that, you know, we are going to see that. in. I think the upside, I mean, it's terrible, but the upside of COVID is we have one of those once in a generation global things that we have global scenarios that we have to respond to. Um, And, you know, I've been there's another friend of mine, Stephen Spaulding, that we've been lamenting that on the states on the United States side, before COVID. There wasn't that moonshot thing that we as a nation were galvanized behind, right? Where there was no put a man on the moon that, that really put us all in one place um, in that same sort of way. And there was a glimmer of hope that COVID would be that period, would be that thing it turned out for a little period of time it did. But that was like, when you get humans who have to solve challenges, and this is, you know, where your work comes in, when we have to solve these impossible challenges and there's no option for dilly-dallying. There's no option for, you know, maybe we'll get to it. Turns out we can do remarkable things. I just wish we got better f- at not having to have the catalytic, stress. Yeah. The, yeah the, I mean, the,
1: the, I agree with you a hundred percent on this, that there's a lot of work. I've worked on this from a different angle, but like we got to get, this is Stuart Brand, the clock of the long now, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, and we have to get past the six month built in time horizon that most humans have like one season ahead, not even six months. It's like, right. It's a season ahead. And, um, we've done it at an organization that I co-found called planet home. Um, we've worked on, we create these these eco sprints. So we'll work with like the United Nations or the Island of Hawaii or Palau. We just worked with the Island of Palau. They want to be renewable by 2045. The human brain is really bad at, at thinking from 2040, right? So we we've invented a process. It's not we, it was IDO came up with it. Originally my buddy, Robert Suarez helped develop it at IDO. We took it into Singularity university. They tested it for a while on a bunch of companies and then we took it into planet home and edit a bunch of flow science and said, okay, can you use it to solve environmental challenges? And we've done this work with like the United Nations and all these other people. And the answer is, is, is yes, but you need specific frameworks for that kind of long-term thinking. And you also, you need to be less reactive, right? You need uh, like, if, if there was ever a time for so, if you want a less reactive nervous system, daily gratitude practice, daily mindfulness practice, and regular exercise. And if like if you worked at the Flow Research Collective um, during COVID, if you wanted to keep your job, you had to do all three every day. Because we're a peak performance organization. And if you're not like if you're reactive and you're you know and you've got no emotional control, you are not only are you blocked, you're locked out of flow, but you're also useless. To me, as you know what I mean, I can't like, I can't have my coaches freaking out talking to clients. You know what I mean? Like, nothing worse than a PhD psychologist (laughs) who's on the phone, like, freaking out. So, you know, everybody better double down on all the stuff that it takes to manicure a nervous system, which, you know, gratitude, mindfulness, exercise, and regular access to flow are the four best tools we have for that. So, Use them in times of crises, so you don't make bad decisions. I think.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to roll back to the to the challenge, though, because the, the nut that has it, it's been a five or ten year ten year nut that I haven't been able to crack yet is again, what's how do we fight the acrasia, fight the future displacement sort of things that we have when it comes to long-term challenges that avoid so that we don't need the crisis to have the transformation how do we do how do we align ourselves so that we're in that that sort of position because the crisis itself creates the strain on the nervous system it's leading to burnout and so i'm
1: gonna reframe the way you you look at it because i don't i'm not disagreeing but there's the way i have come Mm -hmm. think about this i shifted a little bit for myself, which is, and uh, this is Peter Diamandis and myself are starting to work on this, but, and we've touched on this in some of our other books and a lot of it. It's really about at what scale of effectiveness do our tools of cooperation work? Because there are certain levels of challenges that show up now in business on a regular basis. For example, that they would have showed up 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we would have freaked out and lost our mind. And now we can routinely work at that speed at that scale. We can respond to it in real time. And I think it's a, like, I think the problem and COVID gave us a solution. The problem is how do you cooperate at scale at speed without a war driving you forward? Right, like that's the right, that's the Great way to what think people it. forget is the first we have a primary we humans invented well not humans exactly I guess all species sort of figure this out but humans got better at it than a lot of species first which is peace is a cooperative technology right flat out it's the foundational cooperative technology peace is is sort of that you know that which allows all the other things to take place but. We saw it with COVID. We saw scientists the world over collaborating, sharing data, right? These are the most, I always tell people, if you want to see real competition, like real competition, right? (laughs) You think you might find it like in the military. You think you might find it in professional sports. No, no, no. Go to a neuroscience conference. (laughs) See what happens there. See how nice they are to each other. Oh, my God. There is nothing bloodier in my opinion than certain science conferences and science is so competitive and um suddenly it became cooperative and the result like or dislike the vaccines but like up until covid it takes us 5 to 10 years to create a vaccine and billions of dollars and suddenly we've got like three viable ones in less than 6 months that is a biblical miracle Right? It, like, there is no other mm-hmm. way. Like, there is, you can hate the vaccines, right? But still say, oh, wow, they've done enough preventative damage that this is sort of like in the millions of people who would have died without this, this is a miracle of biblical abortions. And I've got all kinds of vaccine qualms, right? But I'm still saying this. Um, and, you know, what's downstream of it is really. Permanent flu vaccines, like things that you're the things that we've been wanting for a hundred years, and we're suddenly like, oh my God, look at like and you know, and it, it's interesting because we even like we're seeing next third generation CRISPR gene edit, like it's getting it's getting really yep. interesting. Um that I, you know, I I wrote a piece earlier this week, just a little piece on the fact that epigenetic editing. So let's Talk about epigenetics for half a second, because if you literally go back 20 years, it's Lamarckian evolution, and it's total bullshit. Not real. This is not real. We've got 100 years of science that says this is not real. And then in 15 years, you're like, oh, shit, epigenetic phenomena are real. And it turns out, like, whether or not your grandfather or grandmother suffered a famine actually is going to have an impact on the great-great-grandkids' weight level, Things like that are real and now we're figuring out how to edit the epigenome. Like, are you kidding? This was this was a fantasy 30 years ago, and now we're we know how to edit the fantasy. That's kind of astounding, and COVID gave us that. So um
0: it's certainly interesting. Certainly interesting indeed. Um you know, I'm going to have a slight pivot here because one of the things that I really enjoyed about your body of work in this research is the you have something that I have at least not practiced yet. So they're always going to have a little bit of healthy envy there. In that you have a fiction brain too, right? I'm I I'm mostly I'm, I'm nonfiction. Don't really have the urge to to write fiction stuff. Um, I appreciate people that do. It's just not what shows up for me. But, you know, so I was, as I mentioned earlier, as I was considering your nonfiction work and the Devil's Dictionary, I was like, huh, these things are all interwoven in a way. And I love how you're doing it on the fiction side. But I'm going to ask two questions, but I'll start with the first. One is... um, What was it about the genesis, the the seed of the devil's dictionary that made it sparky enough that with everything else you've got Mm, going on, mm. this is the thing that that you wanted to continue to push forward? There's
1: three answers. Um, And look, let's be honest. Nobody likes getting their ass kicked. I was trained as a novelist. I spent 11 years writing my first novel and it was a, it was a uh, bestseller, so okay, cool. Everybody knows that. You can look that up. What most people don't know is there's two novels afterwards that are sitting in drawers. And I will tell you that I think my first novel mm-hmm. is good, but seriously flawed. Like, lots of problems. I, there was stuff... I, there was so much stuff I couldn't do. Writing fiction is hard. I'm trained as a poet, and then mm-hmm. trained as a novelist. Then I moved into journalism. Journalism was easier. And um, non-fiction, right? But after you know, I'd written 10 nonfiction books in a row. First of all, I wanted the challenge. I like to keep pushing myself, right? So, and here was this thing that I couldn't do right. So that's part A. Part B is I have spent my career, uh, as you pointed out, covering environmental stuff and animal rights issues and whatever. And I've tried a bunch of different ways to communicate these ideas. So I've started companies to do it. I've written nonfiction books to do it. And um, it always seems like those things result in preaching to the converted. You end up talking to people who already share your ideas, and that's not all that interesting. I want to talk to everybody. And I want to – so if you want to talk to everybody, first of all, you want to take your ideas and couch them inside of a page-turning, thrilling, keep-you-up-all-night right? vehicle. I sort of like – if you're going to give me your attention in general, like you want to read one of my books at six, seven hours, I am deeply grateful. Like we are busy people. There's a lot to do. So you're going to give me seven hours. Like I, like I want to reward that with a hell of a fun ride. So fiction is good for that. And if I want to like a hell of a fun ride, where like, I've got a, a point I want to make, like these ideas that I want to talk about, um, uh, it better be like doubly fun. So there's unfinished business on that side. There's these environmental ideas that I sort of want to communicate um, that I haven't, you know, quite quite gotten right in my opinion. And finally, and I think you're going to probably appreciate this at least the philosopher side of you. You you probably saw this. It is easier mm-hmm. in fiction to talk about certain really hard, complicated, philosophical ideas. Because if you want to do them in nonfiction, like this is why guys like Chalmers come up with thought experiments about zombie, you know what I mean? Like in nonfiction, you're you're either faced with this massive burden of proof just to have the discussion where like if you want to talk about weird stuff around consciousness and plant consciousness and animal rights and animal consciousness, like the burden of proof is – colossal so if you want the burden of proof read my book small furry prayer because you know what i mean it's and it's 400 pages long and that's all like and that was 10 years ago so read small furry prayer and then read all the stuff that's happened in the past 10 years and ethology and a whole bunch of consciousness or whatever and now we can have the discussion or you can just read a fiction book where we can have this discussion without thought experiments and you know non-conscious zombies and you know what I mean like it just allows you yeah. to talk about you can use metaphor and talk about much harder stuff and the things that you know I, to, to the where I am guilty of sort of techno optimism and where that label that is so right is we know from peak performance if you cannot imagine the future you can't create it like flat out and I in both last tango and Devil's Dictionary, which are the you know companion novels, same characters, totally different stories. They don't you have to don't have to read one to read the other. But this is a, the world I created is our world twenty years from now with one big twist. Right, the big environmental challenges we now face, climate change and species extinction, have been solved. Not we haven't won, but they're being solved. And all I wanted to look at was what are the changes in society. Culturally, psychologically, technologically, morally, what has to happen for us to get to this optimistic version of the future? And I wanted to do it because every goddamn book I've been reading about the near future, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's an apocalypse out there. Like the only future anybody can see is an apocalypse. And this was a mistake I made at the start of COVID. I was like, oh shit, lockdown, okay. And I like, before. Or, um, I saw it coming like sort of, cause I told you, I was, and I was like, get thee to a bookstore. And I like stocked up on all this sci-fi cause it'd been a long time. Like I like to read fiction in batches. So I'll read like tons of stuff, by these kinds of authors now. And right, I did, so I did sci-fi and I ended up reading a bunch of like cli-fi sci-fi, right? Near term, future climate fiction. Mm-hmm. And Man, how many different fucking ways can we end the world, right? Like, okay. But if that's the only thing we're thinking of, that's where we're going, right? Like what people – I always say this in, from a peak performance perspective. Humans are visually-oriented, goal-directed machines, right? That, like, That is exact mm-hmm. – we go where we look, period. That's how it works. You Like in, at every level, at every level, at every scale, we go where we look. That's how we're designed as sort of machines at a really deep, deep level. So if we cannot see a future where climate change and species die off has not been averted, we don't have a chance. So I just wanted to say, OK, let's so if you want to call that optimism, I think that's like last ditch pragmatism. Like I'm really like rolling the dice, baby, because I don't know what else to do.
0: I get that. It's really when we get these terms like that, it's always contextual. Like, what's what? What are yeah, your neighbors exactly. and cousins, right? And if your neighbors and cousins are all showing up, and you know, it's a nihilistic, you know, doom and gloom apocalypse. And you're like, hey, something might be possible. All of a sudden, you seem Just, and, you seem and, like well, the, yeah. the possibility. But it, so let me
1: let's talk about this for half a second because one of the funny things about COVID, as you know, is. The, we came to we didn't just come together and come up with a bunch of vaccines. That was interesting. But for those two months, we cut global emissions by 13% and then it became 8%. Like that was a significant don't think that like suddenly everybody went, oh shit, we can debt climate change. Why do you think we got a trillion dollars in green energy investment on the back end of COVID? It's because one, everybody went, oh shit, we don't want to fight another oil war, and it looks like we're doing that. And two, We can actually make a dent in climate change, right? Like with those two things, you got the banister effect coming off climate change where suddenly people were like, oh, my God, we can really do this. I thought it was a total impossible. Now it's just difficult. And I'll tell you a crazy thing. You want to talk about techno optimism So I have a good friend who's an angel investor, and he is bright. Uh, this guy is super bright, super talented. And I, he was talking the other day to me, and he said, and I don't think this is true, but I just need to point out that somebody is saying this out loud. He's like, you know, dude, carbon is solved. Like, climate change-wise, we, we know what to do with carbon. Now we're moving on to methane and all the other gases. And I was like, okay, you're out of your freaking mind, but... Holy shit that somebody said it out loud who is a actual solid investor with a long track record did some heavy stuff in some big companies and I know I'm in Christ I'm in like 7 of his investments you know what I mean like um he does he, <laughs> he knows what he's doing so much that I'm willing to like get in there with him on certain things um and that was just a hell of a statement to me and before covid I don't think anybody would have ever said anything like that. I mean, and I, from where I sit, climate change is a runaway disaster and species die off is a runaway disaster. And we're nowhere close. But it's interesting when some people are starting to say, whoa, we like the solutions are so visible that we think parts of the problem are being solved. And that's interesting to me.
0: You know, a lot of this conversation reminds me of one of the most um, significant books that I remember reading as a philosophy graduate student, which is um, Thomas Pogge's um, World Poverty Mm. and Human Rights. Um, And his thesis, and he had to really show it as like, actually, we could um, eliminate world hunger and the deaths that come from world hunger. And I'm going to misquote here, but like... It's solvable, <laughs> immensely solvable, right? With just a shift of 2% of the world, the rich world's resources to the bottom 66% well, I mean, of the world. When,
1: like, That's why I push back against the techno-optimist's turn with abundance. Like, we're not – like, if you're literally saying let's redirect 2% of the world's food supply and suddenly um, we have abundant food, we've solved food, this is not – Like if you said, God, we got to redirect 60% of the world's flute, flute, right? Like that's the point where it starts to get remarkably interesting.
0: Yeah. And so what was so fascinating to me at the time is like he, the whole book was largely dismaying all the reasons why we can't and saying like, it's actually, we can do this. It's just we don't have the political willpower. We don't have the the, the force behind well, it I to mean, make so, it happen.
1: Logistically, but, I mean, let's awesome. talk about the logistics of, of distribution. Of edit. Like, what just happened in COVID? Wow, the global supply chain sure broke. Now, if only there was a technology where you could, like, take feedstock and you could put it in there and print things for you on demand. And if it worked in three dimensions instead of two, we could call it, I know, a 3D printer. And wait, a 3D food printer, and suddenly we have localized manufacturing without a supply chain. Or wait, vertical farming, where we have localized food. This is, right, what what do you think is happening next, right? Like, I wrote about in Stealing Fire, the Scottish efforts to build a 3D chemical printer that can build whole molecules and drugs from scratch, so old people don't have to go to the goddamn drugstore to get prescriptions filled, right? Right but like all of this got massively amplified by a globally broken supply chain and so it's interesting now are we going to use these technologies to fix the globally broken supply chain that's an open question but do they exist yeah. they exist and you know as you pointed out it's a 2% redirect
0: a 2% redirect right completely different thing and so that that's been my My thinking about so much of this, when we're talking about collective action, I'm talking about individual action too, but when we're talking about collective action, I'm like, why do we need to go back to the way it was before? Like um, the internet, let's talk about that, like largely came from protocols to help scientists and researchers share information. And avoid nuclear war. And (laughs) and avert nuclear war. And in a way it created the unintended consequence of this hyper competitiveness, right? That actually... Goes against the very point of that of that original technology. But to our point well, that's here,
1: that's because Jeff Bezos broke the internet. He brought Wall Street to Silicon Valley, and yes, we have better companies. But it's true. But they're not they're not what they were, and they're serving different jobs. And you can't look to the technology space for innovation like you could before that happened. Right. You have to now go sort of yeah. to different. Right.
0: Yeah. My, my point is why it goes back to that. How can we get collaboration to scale, right? The speed and scale. Why do we need to stop post COVID? Right. Why do we need to go back to the way it was where maybe stuff is not being shared as much? I feel maybe it's, me feeling this way on a friday i'm less open, i'm less i feel it's less probable that we maintain this real open collaboration See, uh, that we have
1: let me counter argument and i'm not sure if you're right or wrong but let only here's the only counter argument that i've been thinking about
0: is people
1: over people miss something in this discussion and i don't know if you you've missed it or not but like what i look at is business, what we call business, is nothing more than a system for sharing value at scale, right? And Mm -hmm. it may not be the most ethical, more like it may, you may not like how the value is being shared at scale. And then we get a new business model that's a little more fair, a little, but that's all business model reinvention is. And the thing I like to point to people is during the 20th century, even in the 19th, business model reinvention has been steady. It's one new business model a decade, franchise models in the fifties, big box stores in the sixties. And like, you know, if you look at it through retail since 2000 and really since 2010, we've seen like 11 to 15 new business models. And we're really at, I mean, do we have a clue what crypto is gonna you know what i mean like we don't have a clue where any of these things are going and all we know is you know at the front end of any any business model like shit gets messy (laughs) yeah and it's done that right like um you know and uh but what we're really saying is we just need different models for sharing value at scale than what we currently have and i will tell you we may not have, like, drug discovery, IP problems, those are complicated, but in places like the environment where we all share it, ecosystem services, there's all kinds of um, new financial models, forest health bonds, things like that that I've never seen before that are these hybrid weird models. And I'm not talking about NFTs. Like, there's that, too, going on. But, like, there's a lot, like, weirder sort of hybrid other stuff going on. Um, that's interesting. So like it, we may not have solved it in something as like IP thorny as drug discovery right now, but things that are a little less problematic, but serious. Um, I'm, we're already seeing that kind of innovation. So I'm not, I don't know if I'm hopeful yet, but I'm, there's indicators that I'm looking at that I'm like, okay, these are, these are interesting. You know what I mean? Like we know that the next couple of years are going to be exciting, exciting, good, exciting, bad, open question, but definitely exciting. And, you know, definitely tremendous opportunity.
0: It's like, I want a part two of this conversation and I'm going to honor that, that you need to run. Um, but here, here's what I will say. I, my, my only thing is I realized solutions can be available right? That's not where it is. But for me, I'm like, why are we not on the front porch ringing bells and hitting drums anymore? That collective mindset, that collective spirit that was at the beginning and during the par- first parts of COVID, that is what I'm more concerned but will, be, for, we, will yeah, go down versus... Like, it, it, is this
1: like even Project Greenlighting too much? This is like Matthew McConaughey's theory of social bonding. That's what this is? i'm kidding i'm just kidding maybe I'm just teasing you um uh yeah. i think as a philosopher you like hegel wasn't entirely wrong right like it's synthesis yep. or it you know it's crisis synthesis synthesis that is sort of the pendulum goes back and forth Guess you know what i mean and certainly yep. um we've seen we've seen certain extremes lately that have to show up before we can get to that synthesis in the middle so i look at the loudness of the media and the narratives and what's going on and i'm like well okay like if as long as we don't come off the rails right now at the far edge of the pendulum right as long as you don't come off the rails what we end up with is that really cool sort of synthetic middle um, Mm -hmm. where real progress takes place. And that, so I look at that stuff and I think, okay, there's a lot of that stuff going on. And in a, you know, can we cooperate at scale? Like these are all cooperation. It's having more empathy, right. And all that stuff. This is, this is what gets us in that direction. I don't know if we get there, but.
0: Okay. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And as the guest on today's show, you get to leave our listeners with either an invitation or a challenge. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you most invite or challenge depends on which resonates with you. I bet it's a challenge um, our listeners to do. Um,
1: that's an interesting question. I've been, I'm, now I'm trying to process it through the conversation. I, um, I uh, I, Guess, I to me, the challenge is, you know, the, the challenge is got to be, my challenge is all, it's the it's the devil's dictionary's challenge. Like, if we want to solve the problems in the world today, we need empathy for all, right? Empathy for all human beings and empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. So, you know trying to expand what psychologists call our sphere of caring right how how wide you know do i extend the like we know friends and family try like we take care of those people does that try to extend that into animals and plants and ecosystems i think to me that's the that's the challenge that we're up against that's what i talk a lot about in devil's dictionary so i guess that's the challenge it's also the opportunity because as you do that as you know right once you start Empathy shifts the information that filters into the brain, right? So we take in, if you're interested in an opportunity, you're interested in creativity and innovation, all these in entrepreneurship, you need to tamp down the brain's negativity bias and make room for new information. The easiest way to do that is through empathy. And if you're not normally used to expending empathy into the natural world in that way, you're going to find you live in an alternate universe, like do it for a couple of weeks. Right. And the world starts to shift because you're taking in different information. And from a, you know, if you want to do good to do good, you need access to that information. So that, that's my challenge. That's my opportunity. That's my, that's, I think that's where we'll leave it.
0: Steven, it's been great. Thanks so much. And I look forward to our next conversation down the, down the line. Thank you so much.